I grew up in a sports family. In fact, I can't remember a time when my siblings and I weren't involved in a sport of some kind. When I was in elementary school, I played basketball and baseball. And when I was in junior high and high school, I wrestled. My sister was the most athletic. She did judo and was a 14-time state champion, a five-time junior national champion, and she fought on the world team, representing the United States and the Netherlands and a few other countries. My brother was the daredevil in the group. He raced motocross. He won 10 races the last year that he raced when he was 16. One sport that I wish I would have stuck with is baseball. I started playing t-ball around the age of five, and I played baseball until the fifth grade. I always enjoyed playing against other teams, but my favorite thing about baseball was the practice, specifically learning something new. It was fun to learn how to bunt for the first time. I think after we learned how to bunt, that's all anyone wanted to do. It was fun to learn how to steal the bases and make a double play. As fun as it was to learn new things, like bunting and stealing bases, these typically weren't the things that helped us win games. To win games, we needed to learn and practice the fundamentals. The fundamentals acted as the foundation for everything else we did. I knew practice was going to be boring when the coach said something like, today we're going to work on the fundamentals. The fundamentals of baseball are things like basic batting practice, fielding the ball, throwing, catching, and running bases. These things were rarely fun, but they did help the team grow. They helped us win games. It wasn't until later in life that I realized just how important the fundamentals really are. The fundamentals of baseball are the building blocks of the game, and they're an important part of what makes a player and a team successful. Today, we're going to begin a new message series called Christian Fundamentals. Over the next six weeks, I'd like to bring us back to some of the truths that act as the foundation of our Christian walk. Now, when talking about Christian fundamentals, we typically talk about things like prayer, reading, studying, and applying God's word to our lives, serving, being part of a Sunday school class or a growth group, you know, being part of community, and basic Christian doctrines. All of these things are important, and they're all Christian fundamentals, but for this series, I want to talk about the fundamentals that often go overlooked. Like all successful teams need to practice the fundamentals, we as the body of Christ need to continually do the same. The title of today's message is Unity That Works. Today, we're going to explore what the Bible says about the importance of unity within the church. As we'll see, unity is essential if the church is going to be healthy, if we're going to experience the right kind of growth, and if we're going to achieve the mission that God has given us. Jesus prayed for unity often, and the Apostle Paul repeatedly taught about the importance of unity throughout the New Testament. I'd like for us to look at two primary passages today. The first is going to be John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. This is a prayer of Jesus. And the other is going to be Ephesians chapter 4. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who are living in Ephesus. Let's begin with John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. This is what we read. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. So right away, we learn that Jesus was praying not only for the disciples who were with him in person, but for all disciples, all followers throughout all time. He's praying for you. He continues by saying, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I 
am in you. So in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one, he was praying that his followers would be one. Now, this sounds like an impossible task because we're sinful people. We mess up a lot. He continues by saying, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. So we're to be one, we're to be united so that the world would have an accurate picture of who Jesus is, that they would believe in Jesus. In the last two verses, he says, I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, that you love them as much as you love me. Friends, before you were even born, the Bible says that Jesus prayed for you and for all who would follow him. One of the very last things Jesus prayed for was unity for his church. His desire was that his followers, past, present, and future, would become one, just as he and the Father are one. Jesus' heart is for us to be unified so that the world can have a front row seat to God's grace and love in order that they might believe in him. So what is this unity that Jesus prayed for? The world certainly has its own definitions. Some view unity as uniformity. Everyone dressing the same, acting the same, talking the same, believing the same set of open-handed issues. A lot of organizations forcefully impose uniformity on their employees, but that's not what Jesus was talking about at all. Studying a few passages that talk about unity, I decided to try and come up with a biblical definition on my own this week. And here's what I came up with. Christian unity is the result of God bringing together people of differing ethnicities, backgrounds, and social classes into one family or body by grace through faith in Jesus. Unity is not something we manufacture. It is something we already have in Christ, and we must preserve and protect it. Unity in the church should lead a watching world to believe in the truth of the gospel. So this is my attempt at defining biblical unity. I think so much more could be said, which is why we're going to explore unity today. But the gist of it is this. We know that Jesus prayed for unity, and he did so often. That without unity, spiritual health and growth cannot happen. It's not possible because the church takes its eyes off of Jesus and gets diverted from its mission. We know that the Apostle Paul repeatedly taught on the importance of unity throughout the New Testament. So we're going to unpack some of what Paul talked about on the topic of unity today. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. While you're turning there, I'll provide some context for what we're about to read. Ephesians can be divided into two parts. The first three chapters deal with our identity in Christ. This is the truth about who you are as a person who believes in Jesus, a new creation. The last three chapters deal with your responsibilities in Christ, um, how you're called to live as a follower of Jesus, now that you are a new creation. One of the main themes in the last three chapters is unity, specifically how we're called to preserve and protect unity in the church. Even though Ephesians can be divided into two parts, there's a singular thread that runs through the six chapters. And that is, because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on the cross for us, we can be reconciled or made right with God by grace through faith in Jesus. You see, in Christ, you are forgiven and freed from the power of sin and death. In Christ, the Bible says you're a new creation, set apart as a kingdom worker for God, a disciple who can now make more and better disciples. 
because of this new reality, you can live in a way that glorifies God and points other people to Jesus. The better we understand what Ephesians says about our new identity in Christ, that's chapters one through three, the easier it will be to live out our responsibilities, chapters four through six. The big idea in the first half of Ephesians four is the preservation and protection of unity within the body of Christ. This is the first set of responsibilities that we read about that should be a byproduct of our new identity. Preserving and protecting unity requires certain characteristics on the part of the believer, and that's what Paul talks about. We read about these characteristics in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So that phrase, beg you, when Paul says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. That phrase is best translated as beseech. Paul is urging Christians to live in a way that glorifies God. This isn't something that's being forced on people. It's not uniformity. Instead, it's a choice. It's a responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God's message to his people was this. If you will obey me, if you will live for me, I will bless you. In the New Testament and under the New Covenant, his message is this. I've already blessed you. Now live in response to my love and grace. If we're going to preserve and protect unity in the church, we must demonstrate certain Christ-like characteristics. And there are five that Paul mentioned in these first three verses. First is the characteristic of humility. He says, always be humble. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. I think a lot of people view humility that way. Instead, humility is thinking of yourself less. It's putting Christ first, others second, and self last. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 gives us a working definition for biblical humility. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Just imagine with me for a moment what the church would be like, what the church could achieve for God's kingdom if we led with humility. How would it affect your family? your work, your friendships, and the ministries that you're a part of. The temptation is always there to put self first, to be selfish. This is the message that the world gives. It's part of our human nature. But God's way is upside-down living. It's valuing others above yourself. So humility is an essential characteristic of a unified church. The second characteristic is gentleness or meekness. When most people hear this word, meekness, they immediately equate it with weakness. But this couldn't be further from the truth. This word in the Greek means power under control. You see, it was used to describe a colt that had been broken or a wind blowing. In both cases, you have a lot of power, but that power is under control. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, reminds Christians that our lives are not our own that we were bought with a high price. Instead of living under the power of sin, 
we now live under the power and authority of Jesus. Because of his presence in our lives, we can demonstrate this important characteristic of meekness. The Holy Spirit wants to grow this in us. When something doesn't go your way, you can absolutely choose to give others a piece of your mind. When someone hurts you, you can choose to retaliate. But instead of responding in these ways, we're called to always be gentle, to be meek, and to live with power under control. Meekness is not weakness. It's responding to others like Christ. The third characteristic is patience. Paul wrote, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. This word is best translated as long-suffering, which literally means long-tempered. It's having a long fuse, not a short fuse. It's having the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. You see, every follower of Jesus is a minister. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself that way, but every follower of Jesus is a minister, and ministry is not always comfortable or easy. Just like there are life cycles in every family, seasons of ups and downs, there are life cycles in the church. The church is often described as a family, and when families go through hard times, the best thing that they can do is to come together to rely on God and each other for comfort and direction. Jesus is ultimately the one who brings us together. He is who unifies us. One of the best ways that we can preserve and protect unity in the church is by being patient with one another. It's having the ability, with God's help, to endure discomfort without fighting back and making allowances for each other's faults because of our love for God and our love for one another. Another important characteristic that helps us preserve and protect unity is effort or eagerness. Paul said, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. This part of verse 3 most accurately reads, being eager to maintain or guard the unity of the Spirit. We just wrapped up a series on marriage, and it was timely that I had the privilege of officiating a wedding a few weeks back. One of the things that I challenged this new couple with was this, that if you're going to experience happiness or joy in your marriage, you have to work at it. And friends, it's the same when it comes to experiencing unity in the church. The verb that's used here, eagerness, is in the present participle, which means we must continually be working to maintain unity. You see, it's during the seasons when we feel like things are going really well, and we decide to take a more passive approach to life and ministry, to let things run on autopilot, I guess, that Satan makes his move to step in and wreck things. Warren Wearsby once wrote that the spiritual unity of a home, a Sunday school class, or a church is the responsibility of each person involved, and the job never ends. Actively working to preserve and protect unity within the church is essential, and friends, it's a job that never ends. The final characteristic that Paul mentioned is peace. He wrote, binding yourselves together with peace. What does he mean here? Well, the idea is this. The reason for the war that's happening on the outside is the war that's happening on the inside. If a believer is not growing in his or her relationship with God, agreeing with God and following God, that person cannot experience unity within the church. You see, when the peace of God rules in our hearts, when we know Jesus and follow Jesus, we're able to experience unity among God's people. Experiencing true peace with God must happen before we can experience peace with others. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Let the message about Christ 
in all its richness, fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This passage is a great example of what it looks like to experience peace with God, and that affects our relationships with others. So humility, meekness, patience, eagerness, and peace are all essential characteristics that help us preserve and protect unity within the church. Now, a list like this doesn't sound too dissimilar from what Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. He wrote, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. When a person believes in Jesus and is baptized into Christ, God's word tells us that person is filled with the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples that it was best that he go away because if he didn't, the advocate or the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. God the Holy Spirit lives in every Christian, convicting us of sin, comforting us, teaching us, praying for us, encouraging us, and guiding our lives. When we follow the Spirit's leading, Scripture tells us that we won't give in to what our sinful nature desires. That's because when God is first in our lives, His desires become our desires. Our sinful nature naturally wants to do evil. That's what the Bible teaches. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 reminds us that living contrary to God's word and to his design is what comes natural to every single one of us. Our sinful nature and the spirits leading in our lives are constantly opposed to one another. This is a struggle that Paul faced and he wrote about it. He shared this with future generations. It's a struggle that every person faces in their Christian walk. Multiple times throughout his letters, Paul encouraged believers to walk by the Spirit or to be led by the Spirit. The Greek word for led implies an active, personal involvement by the Holy Spirit in guiding our steps. God is actively involved in our lives. This verb is also in the present tense in the Greek, indicating the Spirit's ongoing and continuous activity in our lives. What Paul is saying in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, is this, that our freedom in Christ, our new identity, should never lead to license, which is living our lives however we want. Instead, our freedom in Christ should lead to a life that's led by the Holy Spirit, one that desires to do good works and is motivated by love. When we're led by the Holy Spirit, when we're in step with God's leading in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit is the byproduct. This is what's produced. The characteristics that Paul listed, uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, are also evidence that we've been born again and are living our lives for Jesus. It's important to understand that this isn't a list of works. It's a list of fruit. And the difference between works and fruit is important to know. You see, a machine in a factory works and turns out product, but it can never manufacture or produce living fruit. The kind of fruit or characteristics that Paul wrote about can only grow out of a life that's in Christ and led by the Spirit. When we talk about works, we often talk about effort, labor, strain. And when we talk about fruit, we should think more about our dependency on God, the unfolding of Christ-like characteristics in our lives. When we're led by the Spirit, God produces living fruit in our lives. And this fruit is able to produce more and more good fruit for Jesus. So the fruit of the Spirit that Paul wrote about in Galatians 5 And the five things that he wrote about in Ephesians 4 have to do with character. 
This is the Holy Spirit leading us and developing us into the people that God has called us to be. A life led by the Holy Spirit is marked by certain characteristics. Instead of displaying the habits, patterns, and behaviors that look like the world around us, we increasingly display character traits that point others back to Jesus. God wants to develop these characteristics in all of our lives. So how does all of this relate to preserving and protecting unity in the church? Well, these are all essential characteristics that God's people need to demonstrate if we're going to experience the kind of unity that Paul wrote about. These are characteristics that only God can produce in us. And that's why it's so important to stay connected to Christ, to stay connected to the vine. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, uh, continues by highlighting the things that do unite us as believers. It talks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. This is what all believers have in common. This is what unites us. But we're also told that we differ from one another in specific ways. Ephesians 4, 7 through 11 talks about how God has given every believer at least one spiritual gift that is to be used for the unifying and building up of the church. Throughout the New Testament, there are at least 16 spiritual gifts that are mentioned. Everywhere these gifts are mentioned, the importance of unity within the body of Christ is also mentioned. There's a correlation between spiritual gifts and unity in the church. So could it be that our love and service is what attracts a watching world to Jesus? Remember back to Jesus' prayer, that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Spiritual gifts are meant to be used in order to preserve and protect unity within the church. Unity is a powerful witness to a watching world. One pastor said that our unity is as compelling as our preaching. Unity is not something that we manufacture. It's something that we already have in Christ. So let us not grow tired or weary of preserving and protecting what God has given us.